Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, as we study this third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul that Justin introduced to us last week. As you turn there, I want to ask you a question. Are you focused? Are you focused in particular on Jesus? What if I told you that the difference between a beginner athlete and a professional athlete isn't mostly about body type or athleticism. I mean, those qualities matter, obviously. I mean, you, you, you can't have a certain body type and try to become an NFL linebacker. That's probably not going to work out for you. But let's say we're talking about uh, a sport where it involves more accuracy, archery, uh, teho, right? Yeah, teho, that's a sport. Um, Something like golf. Any body type can play these sports. What is it that separates a bad golfer like me from a good golfer like, you know, Tiger Woods? We've always thought it was athleticism and practice and hard work and all that. Actually, we're learning that it's the I. It's your ability to focus sharply on the task at hand. It's actually what researchers have called the quiet eye. Um, we used to think that not just athletes, but fighter pilots and uh, brain surgeons, that they just had better fine motor skills than the rest of us. And that's what made them so good at what they do. But actually, it's that they've perfected the art of focusing in on one thing and blocking out all of the distractions, all the noise and being able to focus on the one task. The Atlantic wrote about the research that's come out lately. This is what they, how they summarized it. Before you perform an action, you focus your gaze on the salient aspects of your goal. The rim, the catcher's mitt, the malignant tissue. Typically, you do that a few hundred milliseconds before, during, and after the movement. The difference in focus time between a beginner and an expert is as small as a fifth of a second. So those of you who grew up playing sports with the ball involved and and your coach or your parents said, keep your eye on the ball, it turns out actually that was exactly it. And the reason you're not a professional is because you didn't keep your eye on the ball the right way. Keeping your eye on the ball is key. Keeping your eye on Jesus is the key to life. Easier said than done, right? Because why do we take our eyes off Jesus? Because there are a lot of distractions, a lot of noise in our lives, um, a lot of things that are competing for our affections, competing for our time, competing for 
our energy and we end up focusing on the wrong things. Even when we try to focus on Jesus and we're learning about him, we start to think, oh, this is something interesting about Christian theology. We end up missing Jesus because we're focused on some marginal things about Jesus. We've got a problem. Are you focused on Jesus? And if you're not focused on Jesus, what is it that is distracting you from focusing on him? Paul is making his way to Ephesus in our passage this morning, and he encounters a group of distracted disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, who he thinks are disciples of Jesus, but it turns out, no, they're actually just focused on John the Baptist. They were lacking that quiet eye for Jesus, that quiet eye that you and I need to And so Paul teaches them the same thing that he teaches us this morning, that we must focus on Jesus and not on the messenger and not on the gifts. So listen for that and stand, and I'm going to read Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God stand forever and ever. Please be seated. A quiet eye for Jesus. That's what we need to focus uniquely on Jesus and not on the messenger. Uh, artist and, and author Gordon McKenzie tells this interesting story of when he was a boy. Times he would go over to his cousin's house. His cousin's house, they kept chickens, raised chickens. Um, and he and his cousin figured out that they could mesmerize chickens. Chickens are not the brightest animals. Uh, here's the way it works, in case you want to try this at home, kids. Uh, you take a, a white piece of chalk And you draw a line right there in the ground, as they would do, and they would take the chicken, and they would hold its beak down to the white line, and they would wait, and they would wait, and they would wait, and then they would take their hand off the chicken, and the chicken was stuck, completely stupefied. It couldn't take its eyes off of the white line. It was enchanted by the white line, spellbound by the white line. And so the uncle would eventually come along and say, boys, you stop mesmerizing my chickens. And he'd kick it in the backside and the chicken would go off and and be a normal chicken. That's a very silly thing I've just said to you. 
but it is in essence what the Apostle Paul is doing here with these disciples of John the Baptist. Paul comes upon them. They call themselves disciples. Paul assumes that must mean you're disciples of Jesus. You are Christians. As he starts to converse with them, he realizes, oh, these guys don't know anything about Jesus. In fact, Apollos, the guy Justin introduced to us last week, he knew way more than these guys did about Jesus. These guys are disciples of John the Baptist in a unique sense, and their eyes are focused on the white line of John the Baptist. And so, you have this exchange. It starts in verse 2. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So Paul thinks he's speaking to a group of Christians. He realized quickly that he's speaking to a group of people who know a lot about spirituality and Judaism, but are actually just followers of John the Baptist and haven't made it all the way to Jesus and thus the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean when these guys say, we didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit? Theologians say that's probably impossible because these guys knew the Old Testament. They were spiritual men. And if you read through the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is all over the place. So it's been very hard for them to actually not have heard about the Holy Spirit. Add this, they were disciples of John the Baptist, and therefore they heard John the Baptist preach. And John the Baptist liked to preach one sermon from what we can tell, and we've got records of it. He would say stuff like, hey, there's someone coming after me. This is actually Mark chapter 1. One more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So unless they were just completely ignoring the teachings of the person they claimed to follow, they knew something about the Holy Spirit. John is saying, hey, I'm here to baptize you, to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus is going to come and baptize you, but he's going to do it differently because he's going to baptize you from the inside out, and he's going to do that by putting his Holy Spirit into your hearts and changing you from the inside out. So when they say that they know nothing about the Holy Spirit, in all likelihood, this is what they mean. They had heard John's prophecy. They believed John's prophecy They just hadn't heard that John's prophecy had actually been fulfilled. And so John Stott summarizes it this way. They were still living in the Old Testament, which in their mind culminated in John the Baptist. Well, that's not going to work because John the Baptist was just the messenger. John the Baptist was a great messenger, but he was insufficient. John's baptism was one of repentance of sins, Jesus' baptism was one of forgiveness of sins. John, as great as he was, as influential as he was, could not atone for the sins of God's people. Jesus could. Jesus did. And Paul is saying, hey, fellas, get with the times. Get your eyes off the white line called John the Baptist and put your eyes on Jesus because everything you've hoped for, he has accomplished. Look to Jesus and look to his message. Stop looking at the messenger. 
Why does this matter to me? That's what you may be thinking. And let me give you two reasons I think this matters to us. Uh, First is uh, the messenger can distract us from Jesus and from the message of Jesus. You and I, living in the 21st century, in the technological age in which we do, when we have the world at our fingertips, all the information we need, the ability to connect with whomever in the world, um, we are especially susceptible to this celebrity fandom dynamic that our world obsesses over, where we love to feel like we're connected to somebody important, a celebrity. And so if, if we get close to a celebrity and we feel like, oh, I gotta, take a, I gotta take a picture of this because this makes me feel significant. Or, or if a celebrity tweets us back, we think, oh my gosh, I must matter to this important person. Or if we even speak with a celebrity, we suddenly feel known, like we've not felt known in our whole lives, and we get sucked into this celebrity fandom dynamic. And it's dangerous when it translates to the church. And I'm not knocking any pastors in particular here, But I am thinking about celebrity pastors and the danger that celebrity pastors uh, pose as good as their intentions are because we have some issues. Sometimes you get a celebrity pastor and uh, and you think to yourself, uh, my goodness, this guy or this person they're so charismatic and and they're so charming and their ministries are so big and they've changed all this stuff like, wow, and we get so focused on them, we completely miss the fact that they're a messenger pointing to Jesus and his message of free salvation for all who would embrace him and repent of their sins. And so any infatuation that we may feel or any interaction we may have with celebrity pastors, whoever they are, whatever their background is, it's all useless, distracting noise if it's not pointing us directly to Jesus. That's the first reason I think this matters. John the Baptist, big deal. Um, But he did not want to be the focus of people's attention. Second reason this matters, and we'll get a little more personal here, um, I'm not a celebrity pastor, nor do I aspire to be. I would be a terrible celebrity pastor because my life is too messy. Um, Many of you know that. Um, But there is a lie of Satan that is circulating in the room and in some of your hearts, and it goes something like this. You think that if I'm not the person saying it, I, Andrew Lupton, not the person saying it, you're not going to get it or feel it the right way. You think that I am far more important to your spiritual vitality than I actually am. And you think, because I've heard some of you say it, when you go away, I just don't know what this church is. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to connect with God in the right way. That is all a massive, massive lie of the evil one. I'm just a messenger. There are other messengers in your church. There will be other messengers in your life. Bryce Waller, who's coming to take my place, is a messenger and a good one at that. He's coming with a message saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Only Jesus will save you. I cannot save you. He cannot, nor can anyone else not named Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off the messenger and put them on Jesus and his message. 
This happens in John the Baptist's life, actually. It's a beautiful picture of this exact thing. In John chapter 3, some troublemaker comes up to John and his disciples like, Hey, John, uh, nana, nana, boo, boo, Jesus, people like Jesus more than they like you. And John doesn't say, oh, no, uh, quick, call the influencers. Let's get some TikToks or whatever you like. He doesn't do that. John says, good, that's the whole point of me. To be out of the way so that people see Jesus. To look through me to see Jesus. And he says this, he, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. And so the mark of a good messenger in your life is one who really believes that. And says the message to you faithfully from the scriptures with his or her whole heart. But is out of the way so that you can see directly to Jesus. Less messenger, more Jesus. And a good recipient, a good church member, a good ministry member, whatever you consider yourself in this scenario, is someone who says, thanks messenger, Uh, great work, I appreciate the clarity, you helped me to see Jesus, and my eyes are fixed on him. Less messenger, more Jesus and his message. A quiet eye for Jesus, that's what we need to be able to focus uniquely on Jesus, not on the messenger and not on the gifts. Why do I mention gifts here? Because it's the elephant in the room when you read a passage like this, right? The spiritual gifts, the charismatic gifts that show up in this, in this story. Specifically, um, you see verses, uh, the verses there where, where Paul Uh, baptizes these men, we think there are about 12 of them, baptizes them into the name of Jesus. The text said that Paul put his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. And that's kind of crazy, right? And we want to know what's going on with that. What, what, What is the deal with this? The charismatic gifts showing up in this way and I'll have to tell you, I have some thoughts about it, um, but from this passage and from the books of, book of Acts, at least, there's a lot that we don't know about what's happening here. And I'll just say these. First of all, we don't know if the tongues they spoke in were known languages or if it was something else that isn't a known language. Um, it could have been like Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, where people are suddenly speaking and hearing in languages that they have no business speaking and hearing in. It could have been that. It could have been something else. We don't know. It wasn't designed to tell us that amount of detail. We also don't know if what Paul prescribes in 1 Corinthians 14 happens, that there is an interpreter there to say, hey, he is saying this, or the person speaking in tongues saying, what I mean to say is, and they interpret for themselves, We don't know if that happened. Now, I assume something like that happened because there's some clues here uh, about the meaning of the things they were saying, especially with this word prophecy. Prophecy is not, oh, crystal ball, you're supposed to marry so-and-so, and, and, you know, tomorrow your car's going to break down. That's not the kind of prophecy this, this word is referring to. This is actually referring to glorifying God and speaking in great detail, grandeur, and beauty of Jesus and who he is, giving Jesus the glory, which actually makes perfect sense if these guys were astute in the Old Testament and suddenly they realize, the person we have longed for so much, 
person our hearts were made to beat for, he's come and he's died and he's risen and he reigns. Wow. And so they start to prophesy about how good Jesus is and how he makes sense of the human experience and the scriptures that they had uh, from their stories. We know that probably because there was an interpreter, but I don't really know. There's some stuff we don't know here, but there are some things that we do know here and that I feel pretty good about here. First, this is not normative. That's one of the things I can tell you. Um, This kind of experience is not the normal experience. Uh, First of all, I need to say that because, and I I will step on someone's toes here. That's okay. We can talk about it uh, more sometime. But there are some traditions that use this passage to prove, they think, that becoming a Christian happens in two stages. First stage, repent, believe in Jesus. Second stage, sometime later, baptized by the Holy Spirit and you're able to speak tongues. Until you have completed both of those stages, you're not a real Christian. Some traditions that believe that. I do not believe that. I don't think that's faithful to the teaching of the book of of Acts or the New Testament. This two-stage salvation. One of the reasons I... I don't believe that is because that, that uh, for this to be a proof text for that sort of reality, a two-stage conversion, means that these guys must have already been Christians before they met Paul. It's pretty clear here that they had no idea about who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, you've not been touched by the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, okay? The other reason I'm, I'm saying this is not a normative thing is because look at, the, look at Acts. This sort of charismatic display of the gifts of the Holy Spirit only occurs four times. There are a lot of conversions, thousands and thousands of conversions listed in the book of Acts. This sort of thing only happens four times. So when and how and to whom and all, I don't know all that. But I do know enough to say this is not normative. And if you have to insist that it is normative, then you got some explaining to do about the Apostle Paul and his conversion, Lydia, the, the uh, Philippian jailer, the, um, the eunuch from Ethiopia. All of them apparently did not have authentic conversion experiences because there, there wasn't this accompaniment of a so-called second baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is not just geeky theology, I promise you. Um, the reason this matters is because I've sat with people who love Jesus with all their heart, mind, and soul, and yet they're worried, they're terrified that they may not be true Christians because they've never been able to speak in tongues. And so we've robbed people of the assurance of salvation. Or I've sat with other people. Some of you have said, you know what, Pastor? I grew up in that sort of church, and I felt such pressure to be able to speak in tongues that I was faking it. I was faking it. I wanted to fit I wanted to convince myself that I was really a Christian. We can't do that. Conversion to Christianity is not a two-step process in which you must speak in tongues to be assured of your salvation. Baptism by the Holy Spirit is this. It's when the Holy Spirit touches a person who's been made in the image of God, convinces that person, man, I'm a mess. I really need a Savior and enables that person to fall on your knees in repentance and faith of Jesus. 
That's what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. If you've not had that experience, then perhaps you are not a Christian. But if you have had that experience, regardless of what other experience you've had, you're a Christian, okay? You could be assured of your salvation because you're trusting in Jesus. And that is all it takes to be a Christian. There's a lot more to say about this topic, unfortunately. Uh, I won't be here to talk with you about it, so just talk to Baxley. He can answer all of your questions if you have them. If I've made you really, really mad, write Baxley a letter um, and tell him how mad I made you. Um, I want to give you a warning in this conversation about spiritual gifts. I'll start with a story. A man named Muhammad, um, excelling in his career, worked for PIMCO. Um, If you like investment, you'll know that PIMCO is a massive investment fund. Um, This guy, Muhammad, was directly managing over $2 trillion of investment. $2 trillion. He's also a dad. Had a little girl, 10-year-old girl. Loved her and wanted to provide her uh, all the opportunities that she could have. And so he worked really hard and he excelled to give her the good gift of opportunity and everything she would need. Worked hard in his job until one day when he quit. The reason he quit is because his little girl, 10 years old, wrote him a letter. And in, that re- in that letter, she said, Daddy, um, here's a list of 22 milestones in my life that you have missed. My first day of school, my first football match, that parent-teacher conference I really needed you to be at. And he read that, and he was like, oh my gosh, I've missed the point. This is what he said. It dawned on me I was missing an infinitely more important point. I was not making nearly enough time for her. He was so focused on the gift he could give her that he lost sight of her, He lost sight of his girl, the person. It's not the gifts, it's the person. And we can do this in this conversation about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We can get so caught up in the debate and this and that. and So caught up in that we miss the point. The point is not the gifts. It's the giver of the gifts. It's Jesus himself, the giver of all. We cannot... Lose sight of, Je- of Jesus just because we, we get caught up in this argument about what is what and, and to whom and when or, or we start treating God like a cosmic Santa Claus that has to give and give and give or, or even asking God or calling upon the Holy Spirit to give us these Holy Spirit magic tricks so that we can prove that we're more spiritual than other people. Jesus is the point. It's just about Jesus. All of this stuff points to Jesus and we can't miss him in that. Can't miss the point. Actually, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. If you yourself are wondering, who is the Holy Spirit? I know there's a lot of cultural clutter about that. Um, If you do a survey of the Bible, you want to read geeky systematic theology books about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does, uh, this is what you're going to find. Everywhere in the Bible you see the Holy Spirit, guess what he's doing? He's getting out of the way and pointing people to Jesus. Actually, one of my favorite theologians said that the Holy Spirit is the shy member of the Holy Trinity. And so, when we make the Holy Spirit the main event 
at our church or when we use the Holy Spirit to prove that we're more Christian or spiritual than other people, we're actually dishonoring the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would say, no, 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 take your eyes off of me. Look to the Father. Look to the Son. Look to the way that they love you. Look to the way the Father didn't spare his own Son but gave him up for us all. Look there, but don't look at me. He wants the attention off of himself and onto the Father, onto the Son. And so if you are wondering this morning what it means to be a Spirit-filled Christian, it's a Christian who cannot take his or her eyes off of Jesus. It's a Christian who sees Jesus is all about Jesus and knows how Jesus lived for them and died for them and rose for them and reigns at the right hand of the Father for them beautifully. Don't focus on the gifts. Focus on the giver. The Holy Spirit is the biggest champion, therefore, of the quiet eye for Jesus that all of us need. Um, these disciples of John the Baptist, they didn't have it when they met him, when they met Paul. They did after they met Paul. They were able to see Jesus uniquely, focus on him, and realize that all of this, all of it is about him. Uh, We're going through our house, going through our stuff. I sold my desk this week, and uh, I came upon this. I want to show you. That is every single sermon I've ever preached here. Um, I saved them all. It represents a lot, actually. Uh, Not all of those sermons were super crisp, professional-feeling, smooth sermons, especially the ones towards the bottom. Those were long. Those were long sermons. God bless you for staying for a 50-minute sermon. Um, I was finding my way, I think, as a preacher. There's a lot of papers in there, a lot of different sermons But I need to tell you um, that it was actually all just one sermon. It was just me coming every week trying to preach the same sermon in a little different way, a little different angle. All one message. And the message is this. Jesus loves you. And he'll never stop loving you. No matter how much he suffered, uh, no matter how far you have wandered, what you've done, what's been done to you. Jesus, it turns out, has had the quiet eye for you. That you were the focus of his gaze, his people, saving people like us. That's what all that says. And so, this is my last sermon. One of the last things that I will get to say to you is what the apostle, well, I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote Hebrews chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, do you know what that joy is or who that joy is? It's you and it's me, it's sinners like us from all over the world. It's his people that he wanted to bring into his family, his beloved daughters and sons. Fix your eyes on him, the one who has fixed his eyes on you. He loves you. And listen, you can forget me. Please don't forget that, that Jesus loves you. I'll never stop.
Lord, we give you praise for your word and for even this uh, strange, quirky text that we got to talk about uh, this morning. Uh, We realize our own insufficiency as people who are easily distracted. Um, Even when we have good intentions, we start looking the wrong direction. And we need you, Holy Spirit, please fill our hearts that we have a unique gaze fixed upon Jesus and the love of God for us. That's what I pray for my friends, all the days of their lives. They be a people who make much of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.